Do you know the keeper of your soul? Have you been saved? Is he truly the keeper of your soul? He wants to be. And if you're here today and you've never been born again, God is not your enemy. He is your friend. And you don't have to live in crisis mode. If you've been saved today, you don't have to live in crisis mode. You have a keeper of your soul. And Isaiah 26 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And when you find yourself in need, look to God. He's the keeper of your soul, and you'll find hope in him, and you'll find comfort in him. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, at this time, and turn back to the epistle of 1 Peter and the fourth chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, we've been in a series in this book here, and Peter, as of late, has been talking about suffering. He's been talking about struggling. He's been talking about adversity. He's been talking about sorrow. He's been talking about hardship. And he has some concluding thoughts on that here as he wraps up this chapter, beginning in verse number 15 down to the end of the chapter. He says to Christians, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Notice those words, keeping of their souls. We're going to be talking today about the keeper of your soul. And of course, that's the Lord, the keeper of your soul. But let's pray first, shall we? Father, we thank you now for this opportunity to look into your word once again. We pray that you would make this time profitable and helpful, and we just pray now that it would lift up our precious Savior, the keeper of our souls. We ask it all now in his name. Amen. There is a song in our songbook. It's a beloved hymn called It Is Well. It Is Well With My Soul. It was written by Horatio Spafford, who lived in the, uh, the mid-latter uh, 1800s, and he was a successful lawyer and a businessman in Chicago. But his life was not without its tragedies. In fact, he lost a young son to death in uh, 1871 of, of pneumonia. And that same year, the great Chicago fire broke out in November, and he lost his business. Well, two years later, in November of 1873, he was going to take a vacation. It had been a rough spiel for him. And, and uh, he found that some last-minute business came up, and he could not go there. But his wife and his four daughters, they donned an ocean vessel uh, to cross the Atlantic, and it was a French liner. And as they were going four days into the journey, it collided with a powerful iron-hauled Scottish tanker known as the Loch Urn. And all of a sudden, that French liner was sinking. Those four daughters and their mother, Anna, got up on, on deck, and they began to pray earnestly, but that, that vessel went down in 12 minutes flat. 
Well, all the passengers were lost out in the Atlantic Ocean, but there was a sailor rowing a rescue boat afterwards, noticed a lady out there clinging to a piece of wreckage and came up to her and rescued her. She's still alive. And it was Anna, the mother. And nine days later, they arrived back in Wales and back home. Horatio had heard about the tragedy. He was awaiting word at the fate of his family. And he received a telegram from his wife that said, saved alone, what should I do? And Mr. Spafford later framed that telegraph and he put it on his uh, office uh, wall. But the, the next day he took the ship and he, he got over to, uh, to Europe as fast as he could to con- console his grieving wife. But he had asked the captain, when we're over the spot where my daughters perished, would you let me know? I'd like to just kind of pay my respects. And, and so it was the middle of the night and he received a knock on his cabin door. The, cabin, uh, the captain graciously said, we're over the spot right now. And he went out on deck and uh, he, he grieved obviously for the four daughters he had lost. But he also began to pen some words down and he talked about the times of life when sea billows roll. And we sung that uh, just a moment ago, when sea billows roll. There are going to be times, friends, in your life when sea billows roll. And can we trust God at such times? Well, he's the keeper of our soul, we're told. And Philippians 4 mentions the peace of God which passeth all understanding, keeping your hearts and minds, that's your soul, through Christ Jesus. We're going to be talking about the keeper of your soul today, but let's get into first what Peter had to say here in this passage as we see, first of all, what I call the appropriate suffering. There's a right kind of suffering. There's a wrong kind of suffering. And he says in verse number 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Now you say, why would he even have to tell Christians don't suffer as murderers and as thieves? Well, you need to know something. Back in the first century, there were some pretty rough characters getting saved. And there are yet today, but we find some folks that were converts from pretty rough background. In fact, if you read about those converts in the area of Galatians, Paul talks about some of the things they used to do. And even those folks at Corinth, they were up to some pretty bad stuff. And so there were some who were murderers even before their salvation. And Paul has to admonish them, or Peter here says, let none of you suffer as a murderer. There were those clans back at that day who had these family disputes, like we've heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys, where somebody would get killed, and there were these desperados. And basically, Paul here, or Peter here is saying, don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a murderer. You shouldn't have to really preach on that, but Peter addressed it. He also mentioned as thieves don't suffer as a thief. You say, should a Christian be a thief? No, but there were thieves at that time that had gotten saved and and Peter's saying, don't go back to that. You know, the laws were pretty tough back in those days on thieves. If you got caught stealing, you could lose a hand. If you got caught losing a, uh, or, or stealing a sheep, you could lose your life. And so there were thieves at that time. And he said, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, he also mentions evildoers, and we should assume the people of Fargo Baptist Church aren't evildoers, but Paul mentions don't suffer as an evildoer. And then in verse number 15, he says, or as a busybody, a busybody. Now, can that be a problem amongst Christian people? (laughs) Absolutely. There are Christian people, and they have their nose where it doesn't belong. There are Christian people, they are looking over somebody's shoulder and trying to fix things that are none of their business. And all the while, they're not qualified. 
You know, they're out of their league. We use that expression. They haven't walked in the shoes of the person that they're critiquing. And we're told this in Psalm 131. The psalmist says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. In other words, the psalmist here is saying, I try to keep my nose out of certain things that I don't understand. They're none of my business. I don't exercise myself in these great matters or things that are too high for me. That would be like me trying to uh, counsel uh, some CEO on how to run a, a Fortune 500 company. I would be exercising myself in things too high for me. I would be out of my league. I would be second-guessing. But you know, there's probably no place in the world where second-guessing second takes place more than in a local church, <laughs> than in a New Testament church. It kind of is the favorite pastime with some Christian people. And in the Bible, it's labeled as evil surmising. In other words, thinking the worst here or meddling. Now, did you know that meddling is actually a sin? It's a sin. You say, well, is it that bad? Well, picture maybe you getting a knock on your door this evening, and there are two policemen standing there. And, and they say, um, are you so-and-so? And you say, yeah, I'm, I'm so-and-so. Well, they say you're under arrest, and you're stunned. And you say, well, what's the charge? And they say, well, being a busybody. You're going to have to go downtown. You've been meddling. And you say, well, that's crazy. And we think that's crazy, but did you notice the company that being a busybody is keeping here in verse number 15? Murder, stealing, evil doing. Those are things that are against the law. But we find here that God comes along and he sticks being a busybody in with that same company here. That ought to stop us in our tracks when we realize how bad it is to be meddling or to be a busybody. It's in the same list as somebody knifing somebody or robbing at gunpoint. Those were capital crimes in the first century. And so Peter comes along and he talks about being a busybody. It's a really long word in the Greek. The word is allotre piscopos. We get our word episcopal from that. And, and, and this long Greek word means Allotre episcopos, not their overseer. And an episcopus is an overseer. It's a bishop. It's a, it's a shepherd. It's a pastor. And it uses the expression overseer. But when you put allotre in front of it, it means not their overseer. You are a busybody because you're out of your league. And in the Greek, it means a troublesome meddler. A troublesome meddler. Also an agitator. Peter says, don't be a busybody. Now, we have some dads here. And I thank God for our dads here. I'm sure as a dad, you don't appreciate when somebody tries to oversee your family, right? You're the head of your home. Not me, not somebody else. I'm not going to try and oversee your family. You know, I've had, I've, had, I've had couples say, Pastor, you need to do something about my spouse. Or you need to do something about this person or that person. And quite often I say, well, that's really a domestic matter. It's, it's not my jurisdiction. I mean, I'll try and help biblically where I can. But uh, there are some things that are not my call. I was having lunch with somebody this last week, and, and someone was kind of meddling in where uh, they shouldn't. And I said, well, I have no comment on that. That's between you and your wife and so on and so forth. But, but I get emails often, and, and I got one this last week, and it was talking about how this, this nephew needed some counseling. And I, I, I wrote back and I said, do they have a pastor already? I always ask that. Do they have a pastor already? You say, but, but you're a pastor. I know, but I'm not their pastor. That's not my jurisdiction. I, I don't belong there. I keep my nose out of that. I try to stay in my swim lane, okay? And we all have swim lanes, don't we? 
And we need to be careful about staying in our own swim lane. You know, we have business owners here. We have businessmen here. And, and I'm sure that you don't appreciate somebody trying to tell you how to run your business. And you say, well, why not? Because they're not as qualified as you are. You're going to know more about it. You're going to understand more about it. I don't stick my nose in your business, but that works both ways. There are folks who haven't passed through five minutes, and somehow they have the answer. This is what you ought to be doing. You know, I find something amazing in the Bible on this subject involving the Lord Jesus Christ. There was this, uh, this brother who had uh, come to Christ and wanted the inheritance in his family divided evenly amongst the brothers. And Luke 12, 13 says, One of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he, Jesus, said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? That's powerful, isn't it? Have you ever stopped to consider what he's saying here? I'm not even going to arbitrate in this area. This is the Son of God who could have, the supreme deity here. But, but he said, that's not my jurisdiction. In so many words, it's none of my business. He said, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? In other words, I'm not going to go there. I am not going to meddle in that. You know, I think the staff at Fargo Baptist Church will tell you that I don't micromanage. I, I basically don't butt in unless I absolutely have to because they're qualified and they can do, uh, you know, the job being led of the Holy Spirit. You know, I have married kids and they're all in this area and I thank God for that. I, I know there are families and they're kind of around the country, but thankfully they live around mom and dad and they will tell you we don't interfere. We don't interfere with their family. We don't stick our nose where it doesn't belong. We don't meddle in them. You know, there are some in-laws and they drive the kids away sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. So we're going to have to resist this temptation, folks. And it is going to be a temptation. The devil will trip you up in this area as much as any area, this one of meddling. And I've been to the ruins of ancient Corinth over there in Greece, and there was an epidemic of this taking place in the church at Corinth. And Paul says in so many words, knock it off. There's divisions among you. You're sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. Stop it. Stop it. And then he writes to the Romans, and in Romans 14 and in verse 4, he says, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. He's saying, Who are you to be judging another man's servant? Well, whose servant is that other man? He's God's servant. He's the Lord's servant. And he's saying, Stop the meddling. You know, in 35 years of pastoring, I've made an observation. When someone is meddling where they don't belong, normally almost without fail, they have a beam in their eye. They're trying to pick a, a little toothpick out of somebody else's eye while they have a railroad tie in their eye and they don't see their own problems. The devil really makes a mess in a home with this thing. The devil makes a mess in businesses and in churches. When somebody gets out of their swim lane and they are judging out of their lane, out of their league, they make a mess. And, and so let's keep our nose in our own business. Meddling often happens, by the way, when Christians get idle. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, he says, busy bodies. And really, uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. We find also written in 1 Timothy 5 that with all they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. 
Now, if you want to be busy about anything, get a handful of tracts and go, go pass out tracts someplace in town or, or go door to door. If you want to challenge somebody, challenge them with the gospel, but don't be guilty of being a busybody. Have you done any meddling recently? I hope you haven't. You know what the Bible says in Proverbs 26? He that passeth by and meddleth with strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh the dog by the ears. Have you ever taken a dog by the ears? I haven't. But it causes quite a stir. stir. If you mess with a dog's ears, you're asking for their sharp teeth. Because that's normally, you'll get a nip. There's something about their ears, they're tender. And that's what meddling does. It comes back to bite you. He that passeth by in meddling with strife not belonging to him is like one that taketh the dog by the ears. And nobody wins but the devil. God help us as Christian people not to meddle. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says study. The word means strive to be quiet and to do your own business. Mind your own beeswax. That's what we used to say when we were kids. Do your own business. You know, you just may bust up somebody's home by meddling. Or you may just bust up a church by meddling. Or you may just bust up a business by meddling. It is serious. It is listed with murder. It is listed with stealing and evil doing. It's wrong. Now, the Bible says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That simply means work on yourself. We have all that we can say grace over to straighten ourselves out, don't we? And so work on yourself. Now, Peter adds this in verse number 16. He says, yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now, we covered this last time. And and, and so you suffer as a Christian, but not as a busybody. That's what he's saying here. In verse 16, he says, yet if any man suffer as a Christian. Christian. You know, that term is only found three times in the Bible. That's what we're called today, but you don't find it very commonly in the Bible. You do find it in Acts 11, where it says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And then you find it again in Acts 26, where Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And then you find it here, of course. But the, the term Christian was not a flattering one. In fact, when Agrippa, when Herod said this, he's probably uh, using sarcasm and contempt and reproach because people sneered when they heard that name in the first century. There was disdain for that name and that title in the first century. But bless God, it's a beloved title, isn't it? It's the title we bear today. It's a badge of honor. And the word Christian in the first century meant Messiah people because Christ means Messiah. And so these were people who were followers of that Messiah. Now, the Roman emperor quickly recognized the threat of Christ in Christianity. In fact, there was a battle line drawn in the first century, and on one side you have the emperor. And to the Romans, he's considered a god. He's divine, he's to be honored, he's to be exalted, he is to be obeyed, he is to be worshipped. He has no rival in the eyes of Rome. He was a god. But on the other side of that line, you find Jesus Christ, the creator the Son of God, crucified by the Romans, but risen from the dead, ascended up on high, and coming again. And that was a threat to Rome. That was really a threat to Rome. And so Peter mentions in verse 6, that if any man suffer as a Christian. And for the first 300 years of Christianity, the blood flowed. It was a river of red. 
In fact, even during the Dark Ages, for a thousand years after that, <clears throat> there were Christians who were being fed to the lions and living in the catacombs and, and being uh, put to death in the Hippodrome. And I've been to some of those ancient places there. And since the first century, suffering has always brought about growth in the realm of Christianity. Prosperity has not. Ironically, it's, it's the other way around. It, it had a positive effect on churches when the Christians were suffering. And in the Colosseum, when a Christian was put to death, there were two that would spring up saying, you know something, I want something worth dying for like that. I, I want to know what they have. And so if you suffer as a Christian, God is glorified on that behalf. And that's what Peter's saying here. Praise God for the privilege and the honor of suffering. And ironically, this suffering, it brings joy, it purifies, it's a good thing. It's an appropriate suffering. But we see secondly here what I call the accountable sinner in this passage. In verse 17, Peter goes on and he says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, these two verses are very sobering to me. They mention two categories or two groups and two different things here, the saved and the unsaved. And it's sobering for the unsaved, obviously, but it's even sobering for Christians, for saved people. And there's a comparison being made here. In verse 17, it says, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The house of God, that's Christians. That's us, that's local church people. You know, sometimes we think that we're immune to suffering because we're born-again Christians. And uh, we're not accountable for wrongdoing because we're Christians, but actually the opposite is true. You know what Christ had to say? He said, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. Now we've had much given unto us. We've had our eyes open. We, we know Christ is our Lord and Savior. We cannot plead ignorance like the lost. In fact, we see a bigger picture. And so we are more accountable to whom much is given, much should be required. Remember there in Acts chapter 5, when this couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, in their pride, wanted to act like they were sacrificing as much as everybody else. And so they lied about the price of something they had sold, and God killed them that same day. You go, whoa, that was rough. Yeah, but just know something. That church was pure at that time. They were anointed. Folks were getting saved hand over fist. And God was not about to allow anything into that church that would thwart that. And in fact, it's a good thing today <laughs> for some Christians, God doesn't work in the same way. But the result of the death of Ananias and Sapphira was no man durst join themselves unto that church there at Jerusalem, but they magnified them. They, they went, whoa, they have something that's real. And they had power upon them. And the Bible says that believers were added unto the church daily. But by the time Peter's writing this epistle here now, apostasy had already crept in. And the flag was being dropped. And we find here that uh, Christians were kind of taking some things for granted. And so Peter says, for the time has come in verse 17, that judgment must begin at the house of God. You know that word judgment there in the Greek, it means divine judgment. But let me just hasten to say there's not an eternal judgment for Christians. In fact, if you've been born again, the Bible says there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. You can't lose your salvation. 
you can't go to hell. But there, this does speak of an accountability. Judgment must begin at the house of God. With the privilege of being a born-again Christian comes responsibility. And it's always that way. With privilege comes responsibility. I have been privileged to be saved. I've been privileged to understand the mysteries of the New Testament church, the church that Jesus loved and he gave himself for. And here in verse 17, it's called the house of God. You know, the house of God is not some temple in Jerusalem anymore. In fact, it's the local church. We read this in 1 Timothy 3.15. It mentions the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, this is a mystery to some people, this local church concept, but it's where Christ gets glory. It's, it's the pillar and ground of the truth. It's where we lift up and exalt our Savior. Ephesians 3.21 says, And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And so we need to have a godly reverence and respect for the New Testament church. It's where Christ gets glory. In fact, it's referred to as his bride. And I hasten to say he's mighty fond of his bride and mighty protective of his bride. And I pity those who take lightly the sanctity of the Lord's bride, the Lord's church. They have a lot to answer for. Now, in verse number 17, Peter says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Please, please, please take seriously the house of God. Now, God does chasten his children, and that's what it's talking about here. Judgment must begin with the house of God, with the children of God. And Hebrews chapter 12 has a lot to say about God chastening those who are actually his own. In fact, in verse 6, it says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, or a child. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And so we find out God does chasten his own and judgment must begin at the house of God. But Peter builds on that in verse 17. He says, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Peter again is once quoting the Old Testament and he's quoting Proverbs 11, which says, behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, much more the wicked and the sinner. And he's just spinning off of that. The righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, much more the wicked and the sinner here. And, and basically, Peter is saying if God would judge his own, that should sound an alarm. That should sound an alarm. Where does that leave the lost? Where does that leave the unsaved? It leaves them in serious trouble. Serious trouble. And there's a lot of Bible examples of this. We find a believer by the name of Mordecai back in the Old Testament, who has an enemy by the name of Haman. And Haman goes after Mordecai, has gallows prepared for hanging Mordecai, and God steps in. And Haman ends up hanging on the gallows there. We find also examples in the New Testament, king by the name of Herod, who took James and had him beheaded. And feeling his oats, he's going to get Peter next. And God releases Peter and God eats Herod with worms. Herod is eaten up with worms. Now, verse 18 goes on, and it says, And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? It's obvious. If the righteous are going to be judged, how much more the unsaved? 
Now, there's two judgment seats. There's a judgment seat of Christ, that's for born-again Christians. And then there's a judgment for the unsaved known as the great white throne judgment. We get that title from Revelation 20. John says, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Here you have the unsaved, great white throne judgment, standing before God, looking for a crack in the floor to hide in, and there was no place found for them to hide. It makes me shudder to think about it. At that time, according to the Bible, their life is going to be replayed. They're going to know they're guilty, and they're going to be condemned. And so here's Peter. He's actually in this context reminding these struggling believers, these suffering people, that the, the hostile oppressors that they have coming down on them are not going to get away scot-free. That's really his point in this. If the righteous scarcely, scarcely be saved, where's that, where's that put the unsaved and the wicked? So either now or later, they're going to get their just desserts. We see the accountable sinner. We see the appropriate suffering. But finally, we see the attentive soul keeper. We could call him the avid soul keeper. We could call him the ardent soul keeper, the astute soul keeper, the awesome soul keeper. But that soul keeper is the Lord. In verse number 19, in light of all this, Peter says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Notice the word wherefore. He starts out the verse with wherefore, meaning in light of what I've just said here. He said, their day is coming. Those who've abused you are going to get it in the neck. And Peter is saying to these, these harassed believers, you hang in there. You hang on, uh, hang on. He says, wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. Now, let's just stop there. There are some believers and they suffer, but it's their own doing. They've cut their own throat. They've shot themselves in the foot. They've made their own mess. Sometimes it's, it's self-inflicted. And when it is, don't shake your fist at the sky and wonder why it's coming down on you. Look in the mirror. There's a lot of problems that we bring upon ourselves. But there are times, folks, when we are suffering according to the will of God. And when we are, we need to fall back on this truth. Peter's telling us something powerful here. God is too loving and God is too wise to be making a mistake because many times suffering baffles us as born-again Christians. We say, why am I going through this? It makes no sense. Well, it might not make any sense now. But one day we'll understand. One day we'll understand. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. As well as I know myself, I'll know one day why I'm going through all of this. There's a lot of things that take place and they don't make any sense to us whatsoever. You know, we, we think about Joseph being sold into slavery and those years he spent in bondage. And you say, why did that have to happen? Well, he didn't know at the time, but later on he'd become the head of the world, wouldn't he? And he would save the world from a famine. You know, when Naomi, back in the Old Testament, lost her husband and her sons, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. That, that means sweet. She said, call me Mara. That means bitter. God hath, God hath dealt bitterly with me. Oh, had he really? What Naomi could not see is that that suffering produced a Ruth. Uh, it produced a Boaz. It produced the lineage of David. It produced the lineage of the Messiah. 
But she couldn't see it at the time. But God was working behind the scenes. God was up to something. You know, suppose David had never been pursued by King Saul, never been on the run, never been a fugitive, never been living in those caves, and never writing some of the sweetest psalms that we have back in the psalms today. So Peter here talks about suffering according to the will of God. There is such a thing. Maybe right now somebody here, somebody listening, is suffering according to the will of God. What do you do? Well, look at verse 19 again. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God, notice the next word, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. Notice that word commit. It's actually in the Greek a banking term. It's a banking term. You know, a depositor will go down to a bank and put his money into that bank, and he will make that deposit, committing that money to the safekeeping of the banker. And that's, that's the word Peter's using here, commit. You know, it's funny, folks, that we can put our money in a bank, and, and we do it every week, don't we? And we trust the bank to hang on to it. How many of you know the president of the bank where you bank? Probably very few of you. How many of you even know the teller you gave your money to? You don't? Boy, you're trusting them with your hard-earned money. How can you do that? You know, we fly around the country. I wonder how many of us stop and interview the pilot beforehand. Now, I'm committing my soul to your safekeeping here. I need to know a little bit about you. You know, we, we get in an Uber or we get on a bus, and we don't even bother to, to find out who's driving. We just commit our safekeeping to that person. Commit. That's the word. And, and Peter says, let them that are suffering according to the will of God commit their soul unto him. That word commit is a great word. In fact, remember in Luke chapter 23 when Jesus Christ was on the cross and he's uttering those final seven statements. And finally, he says, Lord, Father, into thy hands I commit my soul. I trust you with this. Same word, exact same word here. Now notice verse 19, wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now, Peter here is trying to give us some idea of who we're dealing with, the one we're committing our souls unto. He's a faithful creator. By the way, we have a creator. If you really believe in evolution, you have bought into a lie. It's, it's the biggest lie this side of the Pecos, and it's a bunch of baloney. We did not evolve. It's like past the bread, the baloney's been around already. Your eye, your ear, your hands, your knees, your elbows all have unbelievable design and intelligence behind them. And somebody says, well, that God creating everything, that's just some Old Testament folklore. No, this is New Testament. This is Peter. This is somebody who walked with Christ saying, our God is a faithful creator. Creator. People just aren't thinking we have a creator. Now, he mentions in verse 19 He's the keeper of our soul. He's the keeper of our soul. He's our faithful creator, and he's also the keeper of our soul. He made us physically, but he also made the soul inside of our bodies, and he will keep that soul, that heart, that mind. As we suffer according to the will of God, God is safekeeping our soul. Maybe you're going through a trial right now. You know, that trial is unique for you. God doesn't send the same trials your way as he sends somebody else's way. That trial is unique to you. It's not some shotgun thing where God shoots out hundreds of trials and sees where it lands, and I hope this affects a few. No, that trial is going to be tailor-made for you. I've never had a tailor-made suit. 
Um, but it's the same with, with trials. You don't get some size-fit-all. It's a tailor-made trial. So don't compare yourself to somebody else. When you're going through something, it's grueling, and, and the common response is to resist or to dash for the next exit. But we're told here to keep uh, or commit our, our souls to him in well-doing. That is to God. I have news for you today. He has not abandoned you. In Hebrews 13, 5, he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He has not abandoned you. We read this. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. God knows what he's doing. So if you've lost your job, if you've gotten a pink slip as of late, you can commit that to him as to a faithful creator. If you've gotten some dreaded news from a doctor, if uh, the x-ray comes back and it doesn't look good, you can commit that unto him as unto a faithful creator. If you're spouse has abandoned you or you're in a crisis at home domestically or your stock has taken a dive you know at such times we have to thumb through this book for reassurance that God is on the throne and perhaps you're struggling and you have unrest in your soul but you can commit your soul unto him as to a faithful creator God is still God he's omnipotent he's omniscient he's omnipresent and you have to remember that lest you lose heart you know, Job lost everything. And his wife actually, her advice was suicide. Why don't you just curse God and die? And his, his friends show up and with their acid tongues, they rail on him. And Job makes this statement. He says, though he, God, slay me, yet will I trust him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. Job said, I'm going to trust him. He's the keeper of my soul. You know, the night before last, I was holding my, my granddaughter. She's a baby girl, and uh, she, she's so beautiful. And uh, I, I've told her a thousand times I love her, but she is totally dependent on mom and dad or whoever is taking care of her at the time. She is totally dependent. We are the keepers of her. Her folks are the keeper of her. Well, folks, we have a keeper of our soul. What does it mean to be a keeper? I don't know if you've read your Bible yet today, but we're going to read a chapter of the Bible together. <gasps> a whole chapter? Yeah, it, it won't take that long, trust me. Psalm 121, the psalmist says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. We need to understand that God is our keeper. Right now, God is keeping you. And he is our protector. He is our guardian. He is the one who watches over us. He is the one who takes care of us. He gives to us divine guidance. As the keeper of our soul, we need some help with the decisions of life. Well, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. All you have to do is follow this book. That's how Christ speaks to us today. He gives to us divine guidance. He gives to us divine protection. Divine protection. You know, in, in 40 years, over 40 years of being a born-again Christian, I've gone through some rough times. The devil can be relentless at times. I'll guarantee you that. But God has been faithful. God has been faithful with divine protection. In Hebrews 13, 5... 
He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper or keeper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know that back in the early 1800s, there was a missionary in North Africa, and that was during the North African Wars. This missionary's name was Frederick Nolan. And uh, Frederick Nolan was being pursued by the enemies of the state, and he was fleeing from his persecutors. He was going over hill and valley, but there were no woods. There was really no place to hide. And so he was running, he was running, he was running, and he was absolutely exhausted, and he saw this cave, and he just couldn't run anymore. And he knew it was a matter of time they'd get to that cave, they'd find him inside of that cave. And so he just scrambled inside and laid down to await death. And all of a sudden, something, something really weird began to happen. As soon as he was inside, sitting down and turned around, a huge spider came across the mouth of that cave and began weaving a web. And it went back and forth, working as fast as it could, weaving this web within minutes. There's this beautiful web across the mouth of this cave. And pretty soon his enemies come up to it pursuing. And one says, is he in the cave? And another says, no, look at the spider's web. He couldn't have been in there. He would have torn it down. God had done something for him that was impossible. And the enemies moved on. And Nolan said this. He said, when God is keeping your soul, a fragile web is like a brick wall. And how true that is. You know, we read this in uh, Isaiah 27, 3. He says, I, the Lord, do keep it, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. God is the keeper of your soul. By the way, did you know we do have guardian angels? (laughs) There are some who think that's folklore. No, the Bible teaches this in Hebrews and in Luke chapter 16. And I, I believe I've got a guardian angel or angels. In fact, I owe them one. I, I'm going to buy them lunch when I get to heaven one day because they've got me out of some jams. But here's what the Bible has to say about them. It says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. We have those who keep us in all our ways. By the way, if you've been saved, God is keeping you into the next life. It's called eternal security. Jesus said this of his disciples, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. God keeps us. We read in John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give unto them, believers, eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You know something? I'm not hanging on to God. He's hanging on to me. And nobody can pluck me out of his hand. I don't have to keep my soul saved. He keeps my soul saved. We've already looked at it in 1 Peter. It says of us who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Have you been saved? Is he truly the keeper of your soul? He wants to be. You know, there was a lady years ago who was driving at night on a dark night. She was driving home, and she noticed this gravel delivery truck right behind her, uncomfortably close, with its headlights uh, right down in her windows there. And so she stepped on the gas to gain some distance from this gravel truck, and it just sped up. And so she sped up some more, and the truck sped up some more. And the faster she drove, the truck drove faster, and now she was scared. And so she exited off the freeway. And the truck exited off the freeway, staying right with her, right behind her there. And and the woman turned onto a a main street, hoping to lose her pursuer. But that pursuer went through a red light to stay behind her there. And and finally, she knew where she was going, and she was at the point of panic. And she whipped her car into an old service station. 
And as she did, she, she bolted out of the door screaming and an attendant came running out, but the truck driver pulled up right behind her and got out and walked over to the back door of her car and opened it and there was a would-be assailant in the back seat, a rapist, who would have done her harm. And she was trying to get away from that truck driver. That truck driver was trying to save her from harm. And it reminds me of sinners, really a picture here of those who are lost running from God when the provision of atonement has already been made on the cross, but they're fearing the real Christian life and all the while they're one heartbeat away from an eternity in a Christless hell. And if you're here today and you've never been born again, God is not your enemy. He is your friend. And you don't have to live in crisis mode. If you've been saved today, you don't have to live in crisis mode. You have a keeper of your soul. And Isaiah 26 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Do you know the keeper of your soul? If you've been saved, you know he's special. You know he's been there through those times, those hard times for you. And Jude describes him as him that is able to keep you from falling. Let me just say to Fargo Baptist Church today, this is the application. And when you find yourself in need, look to God. He's the keeper of your soul, and you'll find hope in Him, and you'll find comfort in Him. Amen, amen, and amen. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.